1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own Discord channel now where there's chat and things on it. There's Ko-Fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like. There's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are. And of course just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year. So thank you once again. I'm going to stop waffling. Here's the show. Hello and welcome
0: to another installment of History Hack. You've got Zach and Boney with you today. Hello Boney, how are you
2: doing mate? Very well mate, really excited about this one because we're going to be looking at something that impacts all of us really because in the good old days war used to be brought to us on the news and we could sort of watch it at the half hour on the hour film at 11 sort of thing but whereas now the smartphone and the interconnectivity that we take for granted has kind of changed this dynamic and means that modern wars, is it's fought really as much over social media as it is in the battlefield so Joining us today is Dr. Matthew Ford and Professor Andrew Hoskins, whose new book, Radical War, is going to delve into the interconnectivity of the world and how that applies to war and the battlefield as it is. So Dr. Ford is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Sussex, just down the road from me. And Professor Hoskins is an interdisciplinary research professor in the College of Social Sciences, Global Security at the University of Glasgow. Gentlemen, welcome so much to History Hack. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you both. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here.
2: It is indeed.
3: And it's great because it's just on the verge of us launching our book, so it's very kind of you to host us. We can talk about things that have been bothering us for about three years now, get that off our chests.
0: We do like to be cathartic here on History Hack, where we can for our guests, as Boney says, I'm really looking forward to this. We'll start with perhaps the the more obvious question, which is probably why I'm asking it, because the imbecile in the room needs to get the, the obvious questions out of the way first. In terms of tradition, how has war traditionally been fought and communicated before the advent of the smartphone in, let's say, 2007?
4: Shall I kick off, if, if I may? Well, I'd, I'd use the word contained, really, in, in terms of media. It's fought within contained media colleges with i think fairly predictable limits on the speed and spread of information about a given war so these limits you know usually imposed by the state by military uh, by mainstream media sometimes through regulation uh, and of course you know by the limited portability and and connectivity of comms devices so think about for example the history of embedded journalists You know, that was so effective at controlling the Western military message in the 2003 Iraq war. This old fashioned idea of gatekeeping then was was really big. You know, U.S. embeds in Iraq, for example, ironically, I think those closest to the heart of the battle gave us mostly, I think, narrow and decontextualized snapshots of the war. You know, so 1991, 2003, we had the U.S. very effectively planted spokesmen and women for the Pentagon all over the battlefield, of course. So what I'm saying here is this was hardly a transparent, um, objective or fulsome picture of the war. You know, it was it was controlled in time. And as we know, as we remember, live reporting by embeds was not exactly enlightening. And, you know, 1991, Gulf War was CNN's war. 2003, Iraq War was Fox's News War. So to sum up, then we've got this traditional, highly controlled, Highly contained, in this case, US military in conjunction with the media. So this this combination, you know, it's oft, often been called the military industrial complex and it has various kind of manifestations, but a relatively controlled environment of media, of military, in conjunction with one another, producing a certain version of war for a certain audience. That, for me, is the traditional idea of the relationship between media and war.
3: And I think just to pick up on that, Andrew's written his entire PhD on Gulf War One and all the rest of it. And whenever I start talking to Andrew about this, I end up thinking about Norman Schwarzkopf, General Norman Schwarzkopf, in a media briefing room, looking at some picture of the nose cone of some precision guided munition, and uh, it's looking down, or the cameras from the uh, uh, munition or, look, or the helicopter, whatever, surveilling the target is looking down and he's saying something along the lines of that guy who's just jumped out of this jeep has had the luckiest escape that's the luckiest day or something along those lines and being old enough I think it's fair to say I actually remember watching that and thinking you know that kind of structured approach to how information was delivered through the telly uh, the fact that there were editorial controls that Andrew said there were journalists working in and with and as part of the armed forces themselves, it meant that you know the narrative in space could be framed by wanted, what kind of story the armed forces wanted to tell, and that's changed. Well, I am not going to say we we can get into how it's changed, but that's that's what I think of uh, the, what's the phrase the CNN effect or something? Like, yeah, associated. Yeah.
4: yeah, but if you know, and if you weren't a journalist who was where the military of the day wanted you to be, then you were seen as a legitimate target. So, you know, you've got great incentives to, you know, you either, you either want to be in embed or you want to be in CENTCOM or you want to be at home somewhere, you know, anywhere else you're a target. A very, very tightly, successfully controlled vision of war.
2: Just before we get on to the, the changes in that technology, I think one of the things that jumped out at me in the book was even though we had this quite tightly controlled viewpoint of it the soldiers on the ground were creating their own narratives as well, weren't they? they? They had their own cameras, their own things going on as well. How how did that start to impact the story that the you know, the military industrial complex was trying to give us through the, the nightly news?
3: So I, I just, and the thing that seems to me to that as military historians or historians of war will understand is, is that soldiers are flesh witnesses as Harari might describe it. You know, they're the ones that have had been in combat. They can gatekeep the stories themselves. They have got, you know, uh, a special access to the, inverted commas, the truth of war. And that puts them in a place where they can see violence in a way that the press can't. Now, as digital technology takes over, comes in, uh, and it becomes smaller and more available, more widely available, that starts to change some of these dynamics in terms of the relationship between mainstream media, as we kind of describe it in terms of broadcast media or newsprint, you know, uh, paper, you newspaper media and who is actually recording some of this stuff and how they work in and amongst soldiers themselves and even the capacity then becomes where soldiers themselves can produce some of this stuff as well and it seems to me and Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong but it seems to me that there's a sort of stepping stone between the kind of CNN mm-hmm. Gulf War 2 mm-hmm. to the smartphone which involved people with digital cameras mm-hmm. And then you'd have people like Michael Yon. That's the name that immediately springs to mind. He would, he's a former uh, Marine, I think. And there was a lot of times where he was brought um, publishing blogs.
2: Yeah. Uh,
3: and it was the blog that became that stepping stone between mainstream media and what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially Iraq, where, you know, a former soldier, a former, soldier, a former Marine could actually work in amongst soldiers themselves and tell their story from the war up rather than from the journalists down. And that and they could start telling stories about how war wasn't working properly. It didn't work according to the script, as it was framed by the media centres and the embeds and all the other stuff. And if they couldn't get published in the newspapers, they could publish in blogs.
4: Yeah, so the so-called Baghdad Blogger, I think, was big in, was it 2003, I think? But yeah. the interesting dynamic there was that the, the blogs were still very much, we knew about the blogs, not really by consuming them ourselves as individuals, but consuming them via mainstream media. So you'd watch Newsnight, BBC2 Newsnight in the UK, and they'd tell you all about the Baghdad blogger. So this kind of remediation of this kind of early beginnings of what we now look back and call Web 2.0, the more kind of interactive, individualized, participative form of of technology. And then we move into the early, really our our book really focuses on that, that really radical period of change as the name of the book suggests you know from the early 2010s onwards when the smartphone became the the dominant instrument the dominant weapon the dominant mode of communication the dominant archive the the dominant way in which war is understood and remembered and accessed and fought all in this kind of feed you know it's all in the kind of indiv- highly individualized personal feed that we're just very very accustomed to today
3: and you then see. I mean, I asked my students: Does anyone been asked to write a blog? And of course, you know they, they've no. <laughs> they, about five years ago, she said that people were being advised to put their own blog together. Right? This is how you self-brand. Okay. Now they're like, why would we put a blog together? We've got mm-hmm. other means of influencing via Insta or something else, right? So the blog as a form, as a media form, has just disappeared out of the picture. And in its place is the, dev- is the smartphone as a device where you can produce, publish and consume media all from one device. And it has it has hollowed out. It has revolutionized, it seems to us, the uh, means by which people can. It, I mean, it's made mainstream media unprofitable. If there, there are seven billion people on Facebook is what, three billion people And they're all on, they're all using their phones to, not all of them, but enough of them using their phones to engage. That's all happening much more quickly than Mm. some kind of top-down media process. Mm. And so, you know, why buy, why spend money on a newspaper or get a TV license when actually all you have to do is go online and, you know, you can see the news or you can can be involved in the news. even. You can be there and film it and up it goes, you know, Mm. uh, up it goes online somewhere. So that combination of smartphone Plus the emergence of YouTube, what's that, 2005? And then you get Facebook going from a university, you know, an Ivy League university framework of engagement where Zuckerberg is trying to, under, well, I mean, if you watch that, what's that film um, that he's, social, the, the network. social Network, where he's trying to establish who's good looking and who's not. I think it's, you know, that's, I'm, 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 I'm making that less provocative than it probably is. Uh, and then it goes from there to, you know, universities more broadly in the US, then it becomes universities in the UK, and then it's everyone. And suddenly everyone can start talking about who they like and who they don't like. And so you've got this combination of a device that allows you to, to produce, publish, and then broad, you know, upload to these, this infrastructure that sort of completely shifts and becomes a, an information ecosystem, a smartphone ecosystem where Silicon Valley companies and others realize that actually people are prepared to shop online. They want to go out and about when they're uh, recording things, they've got these cameras and all these other bits and pieces that allow them to tell stories about their lives. And that becomes, we go from a a desktop framework of engagement, engaging with online. to something that's handheld and that move to handheld has happened quite a lot. You know, people really take it for granted, you know, to the point where you have, students have three or four screens on the go at the same time. You know, they have their mobile, they have an iPad, they have their computer. They tell My, my team tells me that they are doing re- re- revision for their GCSEs. And I'm thinking how, you know, I'm old, right? So how do you have three screens going and revise and listen to your mates and watch yeah, the yeah. YouTube channel and yeah. keep all of that going? It's, it's yeah. amazing. And it, it yeah. says something about how we consume media. Yeah. Uh, in, in, the 20, in, the, in the 2020s you know even before the 2020s over the last you know eight nine years we sort of forget that that's happened and that we've got teenagers who've just grown up with that as being the normal and at that point's absolutely at different demographic profiles who engage with mainstream media in you know newspapers BBC CNN or the rest of it they may look at the telly as being their main vehicle for getting access to news or just television more broadly and then a whole heap of uh, another generation completely who are not looking at the uh, BBC as a main vehicle for you. Know, you're not sitting down at nine o'clock like Andrew and I. I'm going to speak for you, Andrew. Yes. Here, sorry. <laughs> at nine o'clock on a Wednesday, watch, Wednesday, <laughs> watching some comedy. And then the next day going to school and going, did you watch that? What did you think of that joke? That's completely nuts. And talking about that for the rest of the day and laughing about it. Right. Because that's not how people think about and engage in everyday living and consume media.
0: Yeah.
4: So we have a, a whole new then vision and perception of war, of events, of experiences through this personalized, individualized bit of tech that delivers the world to us in, in real time or, or near to real time. So so for us then, you know, radical war, this is about, partly about the immediacy, but also about the kind of continuousness, you know, and as, as Matthew was saying there, this kind of multiplicity of screens multiplicity of feeds gives us a very very different environment in which we have to or attempt to kind of render war intelligible you know so so you know if you you track the history of war uh, we cite in the book very very famous author called paul virilio who talks about you know the shifting stories of war is about shifting perception of war shifting technologies and shifting perception of war and 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 that has that you know that has completely transformed and but the smartphone is is even more than that you know it's not just about perception and a weapon and connectivity and messaging and communication it also at the same time has a kind of other function of vulnerability you know vulnerability so the ways in which it reveals who we are as individuals. Think about personal data. Think about geolocation. Think about how you know device identifiers, and um, not to mention all the other ways in which the kind of the world is seen. Yes, uh, smartwatches. Matthew's holding up his smartwatch. Ubiquitous satellites in the private sector. You know, think about the ways in which we are identified as individuals, and in the context of warfare as targets. You know, and, sorry, Matthew.
3: No, no. I was going to say. I mean, I think you know, you know, we, we 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 want to put our lives online because we get benefit from it. Of course, you know, we are we are participating in our own surveillance, and that's really important because we're doing it without even we don't even think about how we're giving data points over to companies that are making use of that uh, for all sort of drawing all of inferences and, and correlations in the data. And of course, if you've got three and a half billion people online in that, you know, we've gone through, we're going through in the, in the lingo, the, the word is the process of datification. If our lives are increasingly datified where we have, we, as I said, I've got a smart, uh, I've got a smartwatch on, you know, it, it's recording when I go for a walk, it's uploading that data to a server somewhere. It knows when I'm uh, doing exercise. It knows when I'm going to sleep. It knows how long oh, I'm sleeping for you know if i if there's if we go to the internet of things as is where we are now heading in taking 5g one step further you think about your fridge on the one hand it's a gimmick your fridge is reporting when you've drunk all your milk uh, and it's ordering my printer does that already you know it tell it knows when i've run out of ink it knows it doesn't know that's a epistemological overstatement but it, it there's there's a there's a technological thing going on here where it, the, the system understands that it has a sense of when I'm running out of ink and it orders it directly from the supplier and I get ink delivered. Well, you know, what does that tell you? It tells you how often I print. What am I printing? What the length of the Word documents I'm printing? The da 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 da, da You know, suddenly you've got all this pattern of life and pattern of life data, which is absolutely crucial for trying to understand. You know, my, my students today said, talked about SnapMap, right? And I was like, what the hell is SnapMap? And Andrew's smiling because he knows what, you know what SnapMap is. I think you already know what it is. But basically Snapchat has this function where you are Snap are you, Matt, are you laughing or what? You know this already. But you can say where you are and then it records where you are on map. And then all your mates, if they opt in, it records where all they are. So, so suddenly if you're a burglar, you go, well, I know that you're not in. <laughs> I can just go in and map your gear because you're not there. Right? So You know, you're giving up all this pattern of life stuff, which is exploitable. Uh, And it is exploitable, not just to burglars, but to other organizations, companies, retailers, and even in war that can be used to shape uh, your preferences, your choices, how you see things, how you perceive things, how you engage with things.
0: Um, Well, you come in on that point because this is another interesting side that you're kind of leaning towards here, which is the way in which governments and and their militaries are changing the way in which they fight modern wars off the back of these things that you're talking about, where they can access all of this data because we readily supply companies with this data and therefore it becomes a, a commodity in its own right. How does that change? How can that be exploited and how is that being used in the planning going forwards?
3: I can quickly jump on that, but Andrew will think of other that's examples. I mean, the, 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 an old example, it is an old example now, is the Strava app. You know, Garmin's Garmin uh, sports watches are very popular with the special horses community. And that's the reason for that is because Garmin's geolocate to metres rather than my noddy smartphone watch, my smartwatch, which geolocates to 10 metres or 20 metres, right? So if you take a geolocation on a Garmin you can be sure that the munition that you've called in from far off aircraft lands in the kind of space where you want it to land rather than on you. So it's quite handy. Also, it's great for if you're a runner or a rower or a cyclist because you can record all of that stuff and upload it to a website called Strava, which I don't know anyone use Strava. I don't know if any of you guys use Strava, but basically you upload your exercise routine to Strava and it puts a map in and... You know, it tells you how many times you go for a run. Now, that's great for your fitness, but if you upload your Strava map to a shared group, then suddenly it becomes a vulnerability because everyone sees Strava. Map. Now, this is from now that that whole I can it's easy to talk about that now because that's you know, as a, an example, it's gone. What Strava did was uh, make it possible to hide your starting and end point. Uh, and if you see that you, you know, if you if you've got friends or family who are runners and use Strava. There's a reason for that because it doesn't. You basically won't reveal where your home is, uh, and that can be quite important, right? Not to reveal where you live, but if you have a whole heap of people, then you know that there's a base somewhere. or mm-hmm. they're all running around the edge of the base. You know, I can't understand why. So you know, <laughs> it becomes an exploit point if you're uh, a, a, an adversary of some kind, right? And you, people are doing that kind of observation all the time when it comes to how you engage with online, like how your data, how your how your processes of datification can be exploitable. And that's a simple one. I mean, there are other more complicated ones because your phone is, of course, as Andrew said, a sensor. You know, on the one hand, it's a camera, a microphone, but it's a camera and a microphone that can be remotely switched on. And suddenly you're, and it, all your contacts can be uh, accessed. And just by, depending on, you know, if you're, if you're on social media, and you connect to another app to tell you some inf- interesting insights about your followers. Of course, they're scraping the data off your off your social media account. That then becomes something that they can use to connect and understand who the networks of people are that can be further leveraged. So you've got a backdoor to your social media account, whether you think of it that way or not. That's what happens. So then you've got a second order of bunch of people who can be exploited. Andrew, I can see you jumping in.
4: No, no, I'm saying you just you said it exactly um, how I would express it. Uh, whether you think of it that way or not. And that's the problem because the smartphone is so individualized, so personal, and we use it for so many different functions that we can't do without it. I mean, you're trying all these ridiculous stories about people doing digital detox, you know, the last three weeks or four weeks, and they they're desperate to get back to be connected because we need the smartphone. We, you know, we absolutely rely on, it's not a question of reliance. It's a question of dependency. There's a shift and this is the argument we make in the book from a kind of reliance on digital tech for living and survival and communication and work and leisure to dependency. So if we're dependent on the smartphone, then that makes us, as Matthew was saying, uniquely vulnerable. So if you're a soldier in the field, militaries and governments have real problems because no one wants to give this away. No one wants to you know, leave it behind or swap it for a, you know, an official classified one. No one wants to do that. So what's happened, of course, is that battlefields have become not just, you know, saturated with smartphones from individuals and users who are nothing to do with the war at all, and civilians and others who are victims of, of wars and attacks, but by soldiers themselves using them and sneaking smartphones in and, and not thinking that they're some kind of secure communication device. And equally, you know, they the target users targets, by opposition and others for geolocating those who are holding them. So there's a kind of whole new set of kind of unique vulnerabilities that are attached to you via your smartphone. And that overnight transforms the the very kind of nature of war communications.
3: You, you can go back a step as well. I mean, just taking that one uh, a bit further, right? You know, there's a reason why people want to use their civilian technology because it works better and is more efficient and is optimized by people who put a huge amount of money in Silicon Valley to make things work. You know, governments government IT infrastructure is notoriously not working does notoriously not work very well. Right. You know, so no wonder then people are online using their their own devices and get frustrated with you know you can see that when you talk to someone in uniform. They go well if I call up something from from store it takes a week and it costs me more but if I get something delivered from Amazon I can have it the next day and it's cheaper right and they get and you go well is that a source of frustration to you you go yeah it's a source of frustration to me and that tells you something about the government bureaucracy the government information infrastructure and the government structures of how to make things work compared to how civilians make things work and on the one hand you go well the armed forces need okay. to have things that are resilient and won't fall down in the at the point of conflict But on the other, they also know that the civilian staff in so many ways is better. And the source, the result is some degree of frustration. And you've got this information infrastructure that enables civilians to work in a way that actually the armed forces can't themselves. And suddenly civilians are the people that can watch what's going on and can record it, can publish it and consume it in a way that, uh, the armed forces themselves, well, they would like to, and they it may they may as well, they may do that as well. There are examples, plenty of examples of that happening. I mean, we've just talked about some as well, but you've got suddenly you've got this, the flesh witnessing isn't just exclusive to soldiers themselves. The gatekeeping, that whole exercise of gatekeeping that might have been in place with the CNN effect, with policies, procedures, fact checkers, editorial policies, and you know, all of this stuff, the legal people, People who are doing graphics or the rest of it. No, what you've got is someone who's recording something and then just bunging it up online, maybe with an edit or two, maybe not even. And then just leaving it there as a record of some kind of act- event or activity.
2: You, you both in your book, expanding on that point sort of have the 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 structure of the digital individual and that's not our digital selves online it's possibly multiple versions of ourselves that create through different accounts and and different structures but you also sort of blend that into this idea of participant war so how the individual with a smartphone possibly inadvertently starts interacting and being a part of the war that they wouldn't have been 10 15 years ago so how has that changed how we view and understand what's going on on the battlefield, whether that be from a civilian perspective or from that of the armed forces.
4: Well, it becomes very difficult. You know, who's a combatant, you know, who's a civilian, who's an informational warrior. I think one of the, the real challenges we have is trying to work out what photographs, what videos are, are as they appear. I mean, obviously um, you know, fake information, um, disinformation, misinformation, none of these things are new in themselves, but when it's being produced by the individual, why any individual can produce and share and like and message uh, such an array of informational sources, it becomes very difficult to actually trace and work out the provenance of, of any bit of information. And you know, to some extent, you could say, well, media's always been like that a bit. But coming back to what we were saying early on, you know, this is no longer a contained environment within the war ecology, as we call it, the kind of saturation of information. Information is turned over and spread around, reproduced and produced constantly, including especially by the individual. Coming back to what we were saying a few minutes ago, this notion of Look like an overproduction. We obsessively record everything and anything. You know, that's, that's part of what the smartphone, that's part of what the, the technology seduces us to do. It seduces us to capture. It seduces us to share. It seduces us to um, message. And, and war is caught up in that environment. And, and that makes it very, very difficult in those circumstances, At that kind of velocity and volume and complexity of information to even begin to, to render events intelligible. So it's not, not just about kind of the, the speed and flows of information and their multiplicity, but it's also just beginning to, to have, a, have a sense of the about the veracity and provenance of information in, in such an environment where it's so difficult to we I don't want to use this term, post-truth. We use the term post-trust, I think, more in, in our work, the sense of that that capacity to make assessments and judgments that we could seemingly very easily make in earlier kind of media colleges when there's a lot greater certainty about the veracity and trustworthiness of information about whatever, news about the world, about warfare, particularly those unfolding or apparently unfolding in real time. And that's all gone. And so we struggle as individuals to work out what to trust. And you know, to some extent, what we see, you know, there's lots of work out there about echo chambers and all of that. But you know, algorithms absolutely intervene in, in, in what is seen and what, what is not seen in the context of kind of fast changing turnover of information and images and video about war.
3: And there's two things that struck me as Andrew was talking that seem to be important to to state. This is that one, you know, where is war? It's, It's kind of everywhere. It's in the palm of your hand and it's in the front line. The same device that you use to record what's going on in the front line is also the same device that other people are using to consume and to reproduce those messages or amplify those messages online. So it sort of flattens that relationship between who is a gatekeeper and a flesh witness and those who are actually involved in, propagating this thing and amplifying this, these, these messages and complicating what is seen under what circumstance, partly because of course we, as Andrew was saying, you can't be sure of the provenance of some of this stuff. So you just, it it lands, it catches your attention. You say, yes, you like, you retweet, you don't even think about it 10 seconds later. And then suddenly things are trending or things are, things are, you know, and these images then keep reappearing. And of course the algorithm keeps feeding you more stuff that fits within that frame of your engagement in the first place. But here's the thing, I think. On the one hand, these algorithms are obviously the heart of any Silicon Valley business. They've met that their value, their core value comes from the, that, those lines of code. If they make those lines of codes work, then they can make, they can make a, a great buck. But if that code doesn't work, that, I mean, that's their secret. They're not gonna give it that away. Flip side is, is that there's so much data being produced that they need uh, uh, algorithms, artificial intelligence, other machine learning, other things to try and help them process the quantity, the sheer quantity of data points that are being produced. And so artificial intelligence, all this stuff, is not as a means for trying to understand uh, big data. It's not coming from the armed forces. That impulse is not coming from the armed forces. The real impulse is coming from organisations like Facebook and Google, where the, the challenge that they have is, how do we keep control of our platforms because there are lots of users out there and there are lots and they're producing lots of data and we can't keep you know the the, the, the bottom line here is it seems to us i think that uh, social media platforms themselves have kind of lost control over their platforms and the result is this, this emergent property where we have life happening all over the place obviously there's agency humans are we're expressing our agency here but it's amplified in ways that we can't easily understand and most importantly nor can the people who've designed these you know they can tweak things and they can adjust things and they can see correlations in things but when the government wants to pass laws about making certain types of content illegal you know, I think, I, I mean, I don't know about you, Andrew, but my feeling is, is well, good luck with that because it seems to me that the, the companies themselves are absolutely struggling and that's why they need these artificial intelligence, these these, these really complex AIs to try and get control back, of, get regain control over their platforms.
4: And, and you know, the, the, the kind of relationships between technology, military, war, participants, citizens, militaries, those kind of interrelationships over time you know are very uneven in their effects so in terms of as Matthew was saying a loss of control by the platforms uh you know Myanmar is one of the examples we use in in the book where where Facebook were held were seen to be held responsible for a genocide in that they did not prevent the spreading of hate speech and calls to violence on their platform, and and this comes back to another important point we make that that war ecologies colleges are, you know, we, we often I think get seduced in talking about kind of global vision and globalisation and hyperconnectivity all the time I do, but introducing new technology into into environments that that haven't got a history of technological development such as in Myanmar for instance, you know, and there's there's then a, a a sense of a misunderstanding about what the platform is. You know, users were unable to read, unable una- unable to comprehend, you know, what was behind this. They were unable to read what they were seeing, yeah. other than it being a, a you know a call to violence. And and Facebook, so in effect, you know, Facebook was the internet in Myanmar. It moved in very quickly. And overnight there was these this contagion and spread of calls to violence was astonishing without any kind of safekeeping measures effective safekeeping measures being put in the platform because they had no idea you know that the local population would not understand or would not be able to themselves filter and comprehend and see this these calls for violence for what they were and where they come from so uh, again that's a question of a certain kind of media literacy is certain technology being introduced just dropped in without a particular kind of historical development whereby users might be able to come to a better understanding of, of what this platform is and what it means and you yeah, know Facebook were held accountable and only recently I think I read a story whereby some people tried to try and catch Facebook out to put some messaging hate speech messaging in Myanmar and and Facebook the moderators and the regulations didn't stop it so you know this is this seems so the notion of being out of control i think is really really important
1: one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
0: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
1: until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare.
3: And just, I mean, you know, if you have these, Myanmar is an interesting, I mean, you know, it has a media ecology that's different from what it's like in California. You know, and if you put a Californian business in Myanmar and expect people in California to understand how life is in Myanmar, well, yeah. go figure, they they don't. And, you know, this is reflected even in the algorithm. So Francis Horgan, who was the whistleblower, Facebook whistleblower, was observed observe that Facebook is making hate worse. That's a quote, by the way, just in case you there's any doubt. And she was observing that Facebook had machine learning that could do American English. So if you think this is just, just in Myanmar, it's over there. No, it's not. You know, you can do American English, but you can't do English as in British English. and Or you could do London English, maybe. You know, you could do standard. you can do BBC English, maybe. But, you know, you go to uh, the North and things start to change all over again. And do they have the algorithm that's attuned to that level of cultural specificity? No. And, and of course you, 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 we can't be surprised by that because, you know, humans in their, their in their multi multiple state of, you know, being human, you know, there's going to a 7 billion of, or 8 billion of us. No wonder that, you know, and of course they're having to make generalizations and use AIs in a particular. Way. And of course they, some of that's very successful, but if the business model is optimized to make, Uh, to apply to a certain part of the world where money can be made. It can't be a surprise then that other parts of the world where these things are introduced, you know, because it's part of a package, you buy a smartphone, it comes with Facebook. You don't have to buy a data plan because Facebook becomes your internet. That's how um, uh, a particular smartphone company sells into a new market. You get access to the internet through Facebook and thank you very much, you don't need a data plan, it's cheaper than if you bought data so you could access the internet properly, that starts to mean that you've got one bit channel through which you can access news, right? So you can't even switch between different platforms, different social media platforms to get access or a sense of what's going on in the world. You're kind of locked into that framing, and that may or may not work in terms of the local
0: media economy. Can I also ask what happens when we chuck the historian into all of this? because you're talking about vast quantities of data being processed. You've got historians looking at events and therefore being left with a question, perhaps even an ethical question, about the point at which they make a decision on where history starts, what gets recorded, and where they offer their thoughts because there is that temptation to turn to a military historian as somebody who has studied war and say so what's your take on this
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, that's an open-ended question on where that boundary lies in terms of where somebody's expertise starts and stops and what's appropriate to comment on. But how should historians navigate that? How should they... Try and and help with this process of deciding how you sift this multitude of stuff to work out what them gets kind of percolated into the histories that subsequently get written of conflict.
4: Yeah, that's um, <laughs> it's a really um vital and such a difficult question. I mean, what, what I guess you have to think. Well, what do historians use as as evidence? You know, what is their their basic material? What will constitute the future archives of war smartphones you know instagram will it be telegram will it be twitter who will own them who will have access to them so this comes back to our problem of complexity and scale of digital data images and video messages of war you know for me they're ultimately uninspectable you cannot deal with the digital world in the same way as you could with previous analog eras and then aside this this idea of open source by the way is a bit of a Misnomer, you know, open how to whom how much for how long, so so let me let well let me think about let's think about how history could be used then in a, in a war context. Think about international law and, and how how important history is in in kind of feeding into future perspective justice, if you like, or, or prosecutions. You know, think of all the photographs, all the videos of abuse and possible. Breaches of international law that's pulled out of, say, Syria over the past, I don't know, 10 years. You know, has 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 al-Assad been brought to trial? I guess amongst this complexity is a question about what is the burden of proof for war crimes, who will provide the resources to enable such work and, and when, you know, as hist- you know, any historian will tell you, you know, histo- history is is, you know, it's it takes time, yeah. It and and just to to begin to make sense, or well, just begin to collect. Let's let's start at the beginning. Um, you know, begin to collect material through which you want to make sense of, in order to be able to render some kind of view, some kind of perspective, some kind of historical understanding. It takes a lot of time, but if you've got millions, billions of images and videos and data bits of data points or whatever that is really relevant <laughs> to the to the the event the war the day the experience that you want to historicize and make sense of and and come to some uh, historical judgment or assessment of then it is not humanly possible okay it's not humanly possible so we have to accept okay this isn't humanly possible so well what can we do about that is, is history over I can't uh, be careful. Uh, There's there's various people nodding around the around the room. I won't say who. Um but but seriously, um it's 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 hard to imagine. The
2: two guys that do the history (laughs) (laughs) podcast
4: trying to cover himself. Um it just uh, you know, I I let me give you an example then that Matthew and I met through Army Historical Branch, Army Historical Branch is responsible for managing for gathering and for looking after the official record of the British army okay and and what happens to that record is that eventually it becomes assessed after 20 or 25 years and that is deemed of historical value we won't go in the process of what that happens but it goes to a sensitivity review can this stuff come into the public domain and can it be used by historians okay so this is a kind of the ways in which official history of warfare is being used that from about 2003 a lot of that was just digital data and and now it's images and videos and powerpoint files and firstly you can't make sense of what sensitive and what isn't so it becomes humanly impossible to determine what we can allow to go in the public domain and what we can't and and so in in that and and the volume and complexity of data and information makes it makes that just it's just not going to happen so the history the official history of war was stopped you know in, in, in i know it's just a small uk context but in that context i i can't imagine an official history of um the 2003 iraq war being written in my lifetime from those official sources okay so the wider problem that, that we started with you know it, it becomes it beca- you you cannot humanly manage that complexity and scale and volume. So it, it requires, like all technological problems, requires a technological solution. You know, so so how can algorithms be be used, be put to use, be developed that will enable the the reading and the mining of this data if it's accessible. We live in a world in which it seems that there's so much, it seems that everything's available to us, you know? It seems that everything through our smartphone is available to us through search engines, through messaging, through social media. But it's important to differentiate between what's available and what is accessible. Okay. Just because we have all this information about the world going on all the time, and people often go, Oh, isn't this a transparent wall? We're seeing what's going on. Look at this, we we know so much. And the opposite is the case, okay? It's blockage, it's distraction, it's forgetting, it's ahistorical, and it, it's not a very positive picture to imagine the ways in which the history of our times, including war, will be will be written, will be made comprehensible in the context of those digital archives.
3: So there's two things that jump out of my mind as Andrew's Nicely framing all of that. One is is that um clearly there's a method set question, right? There's a methodological question, and there's an epistemological question. Right? The methodological question is one that historians will quickly move to. Well, we need to learn algorithmic skills, we need to understand how to do search and en- use search engines properly, we need to layer over some kind of some kind of tool set over a data set so that we can mine and pull out the data that we want, right? That's one. The other is it seems to me that this brings into stark relief the importance of memory over and above history as a way of framing and engaging and deciding and deciding what's important out of this dark. So suddenly, you know, people who are powerful actors in the military community become really, they've always been important in terms of framing how history, um, uh, how history is told around military history is told, Uh, uh, but they become even more important because, it's hard for us to read the data. We don't, whether we have the skit sets or not, we, you know, we've got this big abundance of data put in a different kind of lens and you pull out a different story. So hold on, let's make sure that we have the right lens in the first place. What that lens looks like is framed by these the individuals who are also sh- trying to shape the discussion through their important use of memory. And it's the memory of war then that becomes an important way of framing how we go back to the archive and try and recover some narrative out of it that conforms with our schemata our schematization of th- this sort of embedded sense of sense making if you like, that comes with a, a, a sedimented understanding of our past so there's a, a received military history in the UK that tends to look like a focus on war memorials and and commemorating past events and framing things in terms of per- certain battles or you know, we, military historians are very interested in Normandy rather than the Eastern Front. You've got a lot of people who are interested in the First World War for understandable reasons, associated with commemoration, all this kind of stuff, right? And whilst that's happening, sorry, my phone just went, there you go, just a, as an interruption to uh, mm-hmm. my, my train of thought, um, that sedimented history then goes through a process of trying to, uh, 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 sort of helps helps us make sense of contemporary uh, events, right? We start to use and, and it's always been the case, of course. But, you know, then you get on our social media feeds a sort of completely irrelevant reference to a war, a previous war that is used to make sense of a contemporary war. Does that help us? Well, it might help us tangentially, but almost certainly won't. Right because the war that we're looking at is unique to the uh, moment. You know, we have to study the war for what it is. It involves, here's a novel idea for historians, it involves doing research. We have to go and understand the relationship between different events and activities and actors. If we impose a certain framing of of a particular war based on our, our understanding of past wars, then who's to say we might just be imposing a framework that has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on how we should understand a particular moment now right for example i you know there, there's anyone to think there's a war on right now but you know we can't you know so we really absolutely need to junk the idea that we can't do research right so if ever if ever there was an opportunity you know we need to put memory if if I was a historian, I'm not. I don't think I could call myself a historian anymore. But if I was a historian, I would be thinking method, and I would be thinking about memory because I could. But because I, I absolutely am of the an opinion, Andrew wouldn't say it, but you know, for me, history is dead, right? Memory studies is the future, right? And Andrew, don't just nod. Put yourself on the line now, so that we can stand together behind this book. Plus, I'm in trouble. And when this goes live on Twitter, I am going to get crucified, right? So. Yeah,
4: you back it's away so, from that. Just, just, <laughs> just, just silence here, then. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that I, you know, obviously, I, I, I do agree. I, I think the relationship between memory and history is really critical, and what history is seen to be and seen as, and what memory is understood and seen as, are are absolutely in revolution, and they always have been to some extent. But as we come back to what we've saying earlier, the digital really completely, I think, transforms that, and. The kind of availability of the past, it seems that the more available the past is to us, instead of under- understanding more, you know, we have more trouble processing it and kind of dealing with it. And I, th- I think that's a problem all over. And, and I think there are, there are a couple of contradictory trends here. What, one is a kind of an obsession with the past. And, you know, I'm not saying this is historians or memory studies people in particular, but but publicly and generally an an obsession with the commemoration of everything, you know? And I I think that absolutely, as Matthew was suggesting, feeds into um, how we frame current events, current wars. And that's always been the case to some extent in the idea that past events are often used to, to, to make the present intelligible and frame it in a certain way and take it in a certain direction. But the difference here is the mechanisms and the ways that is done so you think you know social media is absolutely the place through which all kinds of weird wars um all kinds of weird scenarios are placed almost instantaneously over the unfolding present okay so there's this you know so kind of social media you think of it as an archive and think of it as a way in which this archive of social media is being abused i think you know in, in terms of rendering the present in all kinds of ways. So in the book we refer to the, you know the kind of radicalization of of memory, this this use of 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 memory use of the archive for all kinds of purposes because it's much easier to do digitally, but also it's much easier to do because it comes back to our discussion earlier on, you know about provenance and the veracity and the difficulty in assessing and judging what is real, what is not, what is factually, what is history and what is memory. And that is all turned up and and used to um, to produce and shape certain kinds of interpretations, certain kinds of narratives on unfolding events extremely powerfully in the moment that just are not are not challenged. You know, this is a churn so it's a in some ways it's a churning over of the past, but also a turning on the past. And that is absolutely facilitated, enabled in a new way because it's so immediate and so you know these these images of past wars and videos of passwords and references and messages of past walls are so accessible. And so we've got this this again, this, you know, some people argue that it's a merging of past and present. You know, they're kind of folded into one another is more so, than looking at it. So
3: just so I, quickly, there's there's a, just one quick example that I can give, you, you really bring this to life. You know, Islamic State. An organization that no longer physically exists, but is now being repopulating online spaces in order to colonize the future. Right. It's about it's about putting out, drawing on old media and placing it in a new media context in order to keep the idea of Islamic State going. Right. So that even though it no longer physically exists, it still exists in some kind of online space. Now, someone's that's a mediated process. And that's based on someone choosing how they want this future memory to be constructive. And so you layer in this future memory at the process where also you're trying to recover some archival sense of or historical sense of what was going on with the Islamic State. And you've got this mix and melange of and an enfolding of these two narratives that may or may not actually portray what's going on and we get stuck in a social in a in a prism of a, a, a digitalized prism of various de- sources of data that start to affect how we may you know pulling apart those narratives unless we do it forensically unless we can pull apart when this particular image was uploaded on what circumstance and by whom and even if we do that there, there's if there's a process of media media mediatization in there that needs to be understood before we can really get inside what that history might if there's a, a story about islamic state to be told that bears any relationship to you know how islamic state actually was and you get these parallels you get a parallel between what's real what's the events and you know there's the media that might the story that might be told online and then there's the story of people actually on uh, out in the field you know out actually living it and it's and bringing those together well that's sort of maybe an old story but which lens are you using to interpret where where is here you know, where's the, the the history's become so fractal. Absolutely. They become so fractal that, you know, you pick, you you go into your history and you choose a history that you like. Yeah. I want this history. This history chooses, this history is like me. This Mm -hmm. is the one that I want, not the one, the establishment history. You know, the the history of the British army looks a bit like this from about 1945 backwards. But now we can have multiple British military histories that appeal to whether you like this regiment or that, that, regiment mascot or you know and it keeps and the social media platforms keep feeding you stuff that keeps you going, yes, this is the right way that British history should be told. And the next thing you know is we 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 don't have a shared understanding of what's going
4: Um, on. Yeah. I mean in the book we cite David Lonefell who says, you know, history is what every man thinks it is. So I think it's impossible to conceive of a a broad history of this time, I think, you know, such as it's as Matthew was saying, it's individualized form. It's kind of multiple shards of perception. It's complexity and scale. And like I said earlier, it's un- uninspectability. But just one other thing I think I just want to add, and that is um, one of the driving dynamics here via the smartphone is the convergence of communication and archive. So the idea that communicational forms, messages, tweets, posts on various social media are also archival. You know, so they have a they have a place. They have a presence in memory and and in history in the archive. So, again, I ask the question: Who's responsible for these archives? Who will own them? Who will enable access to them in ten or 20, 30 years? Okay, these are the questions that we should be asking.
2: It's on that though, we we talk about archives in the, in the the traditional historian going to the archives, rummaging around and finding the lost document. That's kind of in the past because as someone who works in data, day to day, very aware that data is transient. It only exists for as long as A, the archive is available. B, someone hasn't gone in and deleted things. Granted, you could say someone could go and pull pages out of a traditional one, burn them, that sort of thing. But one of the things you guys cite is that what is uploaded today may not be there tomorrow because that digital individual has pulled it down again. We talk about the archive, these things living forward, how we can, how the difficulty of interpreting them in the future is going to be. But the fact is we're pruning the archive as we create it. So how, how is that going to mess things up?
4: Yeah, I think um, uh, chaotic is a, is a, is a good description, you know, and I keep, coming back to this word of complexity but yeah i i think i think that our capacity to constantly edit or emoji you know so if you look at some of the channels on telegram okay about war constant kind of messaging and commentary and emojiing and reposting and you know it's accumulating as you were kind of describing accumulating this this commentary that obviously gives it meaning and value and in, in terms of how it's interpreted in the present so that kind of layered multiple layered and multiple temporal layers of complexity you know make it a very difficult archive to to ever you know even if you can and some social media platforms you can kind of download and uh, telegrams better than others for instance than tiktok to actually kind of access and and make sense of as a kind of corpus as such to download a, a chunk if you like to sample i guess i guess how how we sample <laughs> i think social media is 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 about is how is how we're going to get a history of social media isn't it you know kind of sampled chunks of it but that's such a kind of it seems so inadequate such a partial partial way of of trying to understand the phenomena and its interconnectedness and multi-layeredness uh, it becomes very difficult to to have any kind of you know, historical satisfaction in a traditional sense with with a grasp of the bigger event which is made up of these kind of multiplicities of you know millions and, and billions of comments and messages and and and, and platforms and remediations you know, most of which we're pretty sure will must not be accessible in 10 or 10
3: and And taking that on, you know, it's not just digital individuals that are trying to frame the archive. You know, the secondary battlefield is one where you have different social media platforms applying their policies in different ways in order to shape what's kept and what's not. And then you have a YouTube video that's deemed sensitive by one community and perfectly acceptable by another. In that context... You can remove the archive, a crucial archive that says something about a war crime, for example, that you know might actually be really essential for building a case or framing how to investigate a series of activities. And and that's not decided. That some of that might be the digital individual, but a whole heap of that might well be uh, administered from, uh, yeah. from very from centrally from a, a platform. There.
4: Yeah. So you get NGOs like Syrian Archive who who try and Get YouTube to try and capture from YouTube the the kind of more graphic videos that that see so archive argue are evidence of war crimes. That because the YouTube um, terms of service suggest are are graphic or explicit, and I just delete. And when I, when I say delete, I mean delete, lost forever, gone. So it's a, a new battle really between the some of these groups who who want to maintain and see the see the value in such media content and videos for for future justice if you wanted to put it in, in in a term versus the platforms who who don't see it like that
3: History is edited uh, it's very before it's even before it's even started right which again reinforces my point that you know <laughs> you, you you you're you're stuck in a point where i remember this i and then you're using that to frame how you engage with the evidence and You know, that data's gone or it may still be there or you're hoping that someone's kept a record or, you know, it may still exist. But, you know, it might not exist in the form that you that you thought, you know, because the digital stuff, it moves around. Sometimes it gets kept, It's you know, it's a leaky medium. But the secondary battlefields become really problematic in terms of ensuring whether you're having any sense as to where, how, what kind of history will be told, Mm -hmm. whose narratives get
0: uh, uh, repeated. This kind of message that we're we're getting from this of kind of memory bias is massively scary. And I say that it's a long time since I did any memory studies, but I remember reading about a study that was done into uh, memory of a school shooting uh, amongst admittedly young kids, some of whom were there, some of whom weren't. And they went back a year later and they started talking to these kids about the experiences that they remembered and they could prove from the school records that certain kids who had who, who weren't at the school on that day had incredibly vivid recollections of seeing things like people having been shot on the floor and the kids were adamant that they've seen these things and so this idea that people will go into the archive to create this sort of historical echo chamber is for a Historical. Anybody who's serious about historical study is quite kind of terrifying. So, as we sort of move to wrap this up, what, what's the future? You know, are we stuffed? <laughs> yeah. Are we talk about history basically being over? I mean, do we all just hang up our keyboards and give up?
3: Andrew, you're the you're the prop here. Oh,
4: um, <laughs> what do I know? I really. It's just a a, a real. You know, as we said, out a real a real urgent challenge, but I think one of the, the key problems that we have is there are so many different players that don't communicate with one another, the, you know, the platforms, the archives, the, the NGOs, there, there seems to be kind of a new battle over, over memory. And, you know, as we, as we've said before, you know, we think you know, memory is increasingly being radicalized. So events are, so the memory of an event that's unfolding is, is, fought over. I mean, traditionally war is me- memorialised, commemorated over years or decades after the event. We sit back, we reflect, we take stock, we make sense of, we render the event intelligible through, through reviewing and remembering and commemorating, memorialising, you know, over a period of time. And that involves gaps, it involves silences, it involves coming to, coming to terms with terrible and traumatic events. We honour the dead and that, that, that process which for most of the 20th century took years or decades, has been shrunk to nothing. Absolutely. It's, it's collapsed. It's imploded. Because the memory of an event is now fought over as the event unfolds, or even before the event unfolds, as it's anticipated. And so that the, mem- the politics of memory is absolutely about the present uh, more than ever before. And that present, that politics of memory as we set out in the book, you know, is absolutely fought out with and through the technologies of the day.
3: So and, and just taking that, and it seems to us that there's a lot of things that are going on now that keep us fixed in the present. And that's a very useful technique for people who have power to shape and control the future, right. But all we're trying to do, I think, is map map some of these things across three dimensions data attention and control and by and we 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 if we if we frame it as a map our goal isn't to tell you know there's a lot of people working in this space right and we we we've taken inspiration from a whole heap of people who are really much smarter than we are and tr- who really have a real you know they can do things forensically they can you know but we've tried to listen and distill some of that in a way that we can make sense of both for me as a someone who's spent a bit of time thinking about war and Andrew who spent a lot of time of also thinking about war but very much around media and memory with a view to trying to understand the dimensions of the challenge that we have here so that we can at least give ourselves some handles to try and think okay well if we put all of this together how can we start to begin to make sense of some of this given the such the complexities of the challenge that we're facing, you know, that require, in, in our minds anyway, um, a multiplicity of skills and a multiplicity of backgrounds and perspectives that draw on all sorts of disciplines, from whether it's, you know, being able to do forensic, like forensic computing to historical methods, to people who understand how memory works, to people who understand how uh, war and its in the battlefield works, to people who have some sense as to how things get published or produced, to people in media, you know, all of the and people who work on telecoms and inf- information infrastructures, all of these people are involved in shaping contemporary life. And it, it, I think and there's a reason why there's two of us working on this because you know it's so complex and we have so different perspectives that we really do need to have teams of people. It seems to me, it, from my point of view, we need. This is an interdisciplinary challenge. Yeah. And we've cast it as an interdisciplinary challenge, not just a challenge for historians, not just a challenge for those who are working on memory, not just those who are working on forensic in, uh, forensic computing or in, in informatics, not those who are working on international relations or strategic studies or, you know, genocide or whatever it is, it, 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 you know, it touches and people invert even working in business and how to, you know, um, it, capture people's attention through public relations. All of these people have something to say in this space. And I think that really does complicate the exercise of what it would be to do history in the 21st century uh, and do something that reflects a sense of shared understanding. Uh, and I think that's that—that's definitely the challenge. All we're trying to do is map some of those dimensions. Of that mm-hmm.
2: Gentlemen, thank you for that. Having read the book, and if you're going to pick it up, people, get through the first bit. The first bit's quite deep, but then it also is making sense. Like every good book should clearly those were Andrew's bits. Um, <laughs> but seriously, it's, this has been a fascinating discussion. I think the, the journey you take us on in, in the book very much brings us to where we are and helps us understand a lot of how, what we are seeing is created and how, we need to be aware of how that data is being created for use in the future. And I think it's, it's very timely. So this is going out on the day of release. What is the book called? Radical War, data attention and control in the 21st century. And you can Published
3: by it. Hearst in the UK and OUP in the, US. Oh, in the US.
2: And everybody should buy a copy. That's my, that's, that's well, my several. <laughs> yes. <there we> <laughs>
3: One for your family. <laughs> get, get, yes. get them for get one for christmas, christmas
2: but we'll put the book on our bookshop as well so the link will be in the description for that so thank people you. can just click on there and grab it so matthew andrew thank you so much this has been interesting enjoyable maybe not so much but certainly interesting <laughs> thank you so much matt and zach thank you
3: thank you both it was really great and very kind of you to uh, have us for um, like an hour and a bit
4: thank you our pleasure thank you